0: Thanks for checking out the Reveal Vineyard podcast. We are a Jesus centered community in El Mirage, Arizona. We hope through these conversations your spirit will be stirred. For more information, you can visit our website at www.revealvineyard.com. Week number three of our series on the book of Colossians, the New Testament book of Colossians. But it's really not a book, right? We've been saying it's actually a letter that was written by a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul, around 62 AD, and it was written to the church at Colossae, or the people who make up the church of Colossae. It's why it's called the book, or really should be the letter, the epistle of Colossians. Now, uh, if, if you're not sure where it's at, uh, Colossae at uh, the time of Uh, well, prior to Paul's letter, was a thriving market city. Uh, During the time of the uh, letter, it was on the downward decline. Uh, A major earthquake swept through Colossae around the time just shortly after the letter was written. It leveled the city. Colossae is now gone by the way of ancient ruins for the most part. It has not been excavated. It's not been explored. Uh, It sits covered by earth. Uh, It uh, exists in the general area of modern-day Turkey, uh, and so Paul's letter to the church at Colossae was to bring encouragement and correction. They got a little off-center in their theology. The gospel started uh, being mixed with uh, other ideas and other religions. Remember, the, the prevailing power over the time was Rome. And one of the things that Rome did was thousands of miles of roads, right? All roads lead to Rome. What that did made travel a whole lot easier. And so there was a mixing Of religious ideas that was very common and prevalent, and it was now seeping into the new church at uh, Colossae. And so, what we have today in our modern Bibles is a copy of that letter. Paul would write the letter, it would be read in front of the church, it would be copied down, and then it would be uh, sent to another local church that would read the letter, they would copy it down, send it to another church, and rinse and repeat. It would just continue. So, we have a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Uh, preserved throughout history, and now neatly packed into this little leather-bound book, which is the number one selling book in all of history and the number one shoplifted book in all of history. Go figure that one out. That's true. I'm not sure how that works, but it, 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 it's true. And so uh, quickly show you uh, an image there. What is on the screen is known as P46, Papyrus 46. Uh, it is significant because it came out of a codex Um, uh, that contained many of the letters from Paul. Uh, The significance of this, is it is one of the oldest copies that we have of a New Testament manuscript, somewhere around 175 to 225 AD. Part of what you're looking at is Colossians 1, part of the scripture that uh, we will uh, be reading today. Uh, If you're ever in Dublin, Ireland, you can see half of them. The other half is actually uh, at Michigan State University. Uh, I've read them a letter to see if they would loan them to us. I said we would keep them sealed in Tupperware. They turned me down. Uh, So uh, notice uh, no chapters, no verses, because it was a letter, right? It was a letter written to specific people for a specific purpose. We put the chapters and verses in later to help with uh, easy referencing. So the portion of uh, Colossians that we're reading today, it highlights the supremacy and the power of Christ. And so Paul points out Uh, points Jesus as the supreme being over all of creation and over all of time, that no one is more loved uh, and really no one is more hated. Uh, Today we can see the influences of Jesus through art, music, and literature, and books. Some friends, some foes. Opinions can be seen in all form of the arts. And so today we ask an important question. Uh, Who is Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? And there are no shortage of answers. Every major religious movement uh, considers Jesus to be an important religious figure. Matter of fact, every major uh, religious movement um, tries to account for his existence and his teachings, which if you're a seeker should give you reason to pause to really consider Jesus as as Savior. Mormons will tell you that he is the half-brother of Lucifer, that he was not... Eternally God, but that he became God. Uh, If uh, you you dig uh, deep into the uh, Muslim faith, they would say that Jesus is a prophet held in high regard, but beneath the ultimate or the final prophet of Muhammad. Hindus would have a plethora of ideas of who Jesus is. They would say he was an enlightened man, he was an enlightened teacher. Uh, The uh, Buddhists would say that he also was an enlightened man. And so, in this portion of Colossians, Paul is going to paint a vivid picture of who Jesus is. And he does not approach the topic cautiously, and he is not politically correct, as we're about to find out. Uh, But what we're about to read is possibly one of the most beautifully described pictures of Jesus in all of uh, Scripture. It is packed with nuggets of spiritual gold. Uh, And I've been excited to share this specific passage with you, For weeks now, uh, I'm extremely excited. I am as excited as Roseanne Bard and Ambien Convention. (laughs) Too soon? All right, moving right along. All right, as much of this passage, let's pray and uh, see what God has for us. I'm going to close my eyes when I pray. That is, for some of you, your escape clause right there. Lord, uh, speak to us so clearly as we look at just such a powerful passage about who Jesus is. And there's this vivid picture that we're going to get. And I pray it would just settle on us and it would rest over us and that our, our view of the Jesus that we serve and the Jesus that has saved us, would, it would just be expanded. I pray that there is an excitement over the God that we serve and, and, and your love for us and uh, your gift of the cross and all that you bring to us. And so, Lord, we want to uh, uh, submit ourselves to you. We want to present ourselves to you as students of your word, to have an understanding of what is contained in this book that we call the Bible. And so even as we uh, continue uh, with our service, we uh, enter into a time of offering and an attitude of worship as well, putting you first uh, in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are starting at Colossians 1, 15, looking at the supremacy of Jesus. So Paul says this. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, as we read that, you tell me, when we talk about who is Jesus, the first thing Paul says, Jesus is what? Come on, someone. I even put it in yellow for you right there. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's painting a picture of who Jesus is. So if we're painting a picture of who Jesus is, go to that next screen. Here's Jesus. He is the perfect, think of this, he is the perfect image of the invisible God. If you ever wanted to know what God the Father looks like in his character, in his behavior, all we have to do is look to Jesus. How do you look to Jesus? Read the text, right? We have four gospels, good news, written about the life and character uh, and the inner workings of Jesus. One such is the gospel of John. John was a firsthand observer right? He lived it. He saw it. He was an eyewitness, and he wrote of his experience with Jesus. He even tells us in John 20 why he wrote it. He said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, of which he was one, which are not recorded in this book, uh, but these things. He's saying, I have written these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is saying, look, before I forget all these things, I want you to read them that you might find the same Jesus that I have come to know. If you want to know the character of God, if you want to know the character of the Father, just look to his Son. Jesus makes the invisible God visible. He makes the seen or the unseen seen, right? And so it's not difficult to understand the nature of God the Father. If you want to know the character of God, look to the son. On one occasion, one of Jesus' disciples asked him, can you show us the Father? Listen to Jesus' direct response to him. Said, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, that, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, do you know me, Philip? He says, do uh, you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has what? Has seen the Father. Jesus perfectly, listen, perfectly reflects the image of God the Father. Here's one thing I know about all of us today. When you got up at some point, you stood in front of a mirror. And that mirror accurately reflected the true image of yourself. Now some of you are like, yeah, my, my mirror's warped. It adds pounds to it. I doubt it, all right? I tell myself the same thing. But it reflects the true image of you. matter of fact, I can tell you how long you stood in front of that mirror doesn't matter if you wear makeup or you go natural. doesn't matter if you're man or woman. You stood in front of that mirror until it got better. Am I right? And at some point you're like, this is as good as it gets, and that's when you were done with the mirror. And so Jesus, like a mirror of sorts, accurately reflects the exact image of, of God, the character and the nature of God. Look at Colossians 1.15. Paul continues. The Son is the image of the invisible God, and He is the firstborn over all of creation. Now, Paul tells us that Jesus is the firstborn or the first created being created by God the Father. Is that what Scripture's telling us? Just shake your head. That's not what Scripture is telling us. Listen, Jesus is not a created being. That is not what this passage is telling us. So let's unpack it and try to see what it says. Uh, Paul is referencing a position of authority and a position of prominence. Now the firstborn in this culture uh, held uh, a a position of honor, a position of authority. Uh, They held a unique rank and a unique privilege. didn't matter how many children you had, the firstborn held this. And over time... The term firstborn began to be used not to communicate lineage or birth order, listen, but a unique rank and privilege of an individual. Israel is called uh, the first nation or the firstborn nation uh, of God. But were they the first nation that ever existed? Of course not. There were entire civilizations before them, but they did hold a position that was unique and a position of of, of, of rank and authority that was unique to them and so paul is highlighting the rank and the authority and the preeminence and the supremacy held by jesus so who is jesus he is the ruler over all of creation now some religions today uh jehovah witnesses for example i'm not bashing them but this is just to to bring some clarity um claim that Jesus, because of this verse for a large part, that Jesus was not eternally God, but that Jesus was created by God, but was not eternally God. Therefore, he is subservient. He is beneath God the Father. Now, this line of thinking uh, is nothing new. It can be traced all the way back to the third century to a guy named Arius, uh, who started a teaching called Arianism, and he taught the same thing, that Jesus was not eternally God, but that he was created by God, and he is a lesser, maybe a small g God, to God the Father. And this was uh, refuted by our early church fathers. Uh, It was shot down. But obviously, uh, this false teaching uh, is still creeping around today. We believe in the triune Godhead, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All of them individually unique, but it's not three gods, it's one God. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, each unique but one God. I know we can't fully get our minds uh, uh, around that. Uh, but Jesus is not created, he's actually the creator. Look at Colossians 1.16. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then Paul says, for in him all things were created. Jesus is not created he is the creator. And so we have to be careful when we read scripture that we have to read it in context or we can get all out of whack and, and, and start believing things that are not scripturally true. Now, look at that passage again and we see that Jesus holds preeminence. He is the first in everything, right? He is first in rank, first in authority, first in power, first in supremacy. So let's ask this question. Is Jesus first in the long list of things that make up your life. Is Jesus first in your relationships? If you say yes, what does that mean exactly, if Jesus is first in your relationships? Is Jesus first in your marriage? Is he first in your decision-making? Is he first in your finances? Because Paul is making the claim over all of creation, Jesus holds supremacy over everything. One day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and hey, we can either bow on this side of death or we can bow on the other side of death but at some point every knee will bow so is he first now before we continue with our passage we're going to unpack a little background and if you don't like history you're not going to be happy over the next 10 minutes but uh, we're going to unpack a little background and look at the culture in which colossians was written the prevailing power over all of the known world was rome Uh, and uh, they've had significant influence in all that exists even uh, today. Uh, At its height, it was the most extensive political uh, and social structure the world has ever known. The forerunner to the great Roman Empire uh, was Gaius Julius Caesar. Uh, He was murdered in 44 B.C., and upon his death, there was uh, a power vacuum, and chaos ensues, uh, there are skirmishes for position, there is an economic collapse, and really all of Rome is looking for prosperity and for safety and, and for security. The answer was this guy, uh, Gaius Octavius, otherwise known as uh, Augustus. Uh, this statue is Augustus of Prima Porta, uh, that little uh, baby on the bottom uh, is uh, significant in that it is representing The Caesar line of deity uh, coming uh, all the way from some of the the smaller uh, Roman gods, uh, Venus, for example. And so uh, Octavius is adopted by Julius Caesar. Uh, He is his nephew. He is adopted by Julius Caesar, and now, in the wake of his father's death, uh, Octavius is looking for an opportunity to claim his rightful throne, to claim his empire. The Roman Senate conferred upon him the name Augustus uh, in 27 B.C. Uh, That's why you probably know him as Caesar Augustus. And so begins what we know as the expansion of the Roman Empire. Now, uh, at the time of Jesus' birth, Augustus was the Caesar. So follow and track with where we're going. Four months after Julius Caesar's death, there was a great festival that was held, a funeral celebration, And in the sky was a comet or a bright star, uh, some say lasting for several days. And the notion was that it was actually the soul of Julius Caesar entering into the heavens and becoming uh, a deity or becoming a god. Now, this was good news for Augustus, who was Caesar's son, adopted son, because if Julius, his father is God, it means that Augustus is now the son of God. Uh, follow where we're going on all this. I want to show you some coins from uh, around this time period. Uh, here is a coin uh, Caesar Augustus on the front that you can see there. Uh, but on the back it says Divus Julius. Uh, the idea is the divine Caesar, right? In Latin, there are certain letters that did not exist, and, and so the I V L I V S, uh, the the divine or the deified. Julius, and what is in the center of the coin is this star or the comet that kind of gives credence to this idea that Julius is now divine, he's been deified. It's the comet, it's the star, and they were building something here among the Roman Empire. Look at another coin. This one here says Augustus, Julius Caesar's adopted son, and it says DVF. The F is short for Phileos. Uh, which means son in Latin. What is Augustus claiming? He's claiming that Augustus is the divine son of God. He's the divine son of Julius. By the way, that coin sold for uh, well over 80 grand uh, several years ago. If you find one, let me know. Uh, So catch what we're going at here. All right. I promise we're going to circle back around into Colossians. The Roman Empire has endorsed its own authority. And Caesar is operating not as a mere man, but he's operating as an agent of God or as a small g-god. Rome has ultimate authority and has claimed uh, uh, ownership over every area of your existence, including your spiritual existence. Rome is God's nation, and the emperor at this time is divine. So this pattern of divine Caesars continues. Next Caesar after Augustus was Tiberius. Uh, broken this one down you can see the t in the lower uh, left corner for tiberius and then caesar and then there it is again this idea of it is the divine tiberius right he is uh he is uh uh, being deified the god of uh, tiberius and look at the next one next is caligula now if you think your family was dysfunctional you know read up on this cat right caligula's uh, there on the left, but on the right, he's paying homage to Augustus, right? The first Caesar where the Roman expansion occurred. And what is on the coin? But the stars or the comets, uh, even his crowns representing deity uh, moving outward. And again, it is this idea that the line of the Caesars are now deity and they are to be approached and looked at as godlike uh, figures. So Roman authority rests on the idea that Caesar is divine. Now we go all the way back to Augustus. And he makes a promise to Rome. As divinity, if you devote yourself to me, I will give you what you want. I will give you peace and prosperity, which is what everyone was looking for after Julius Caesar died. Augustus says, as the divine son, and now the God of Rome, I will give you what you seek. And what you seek is Pax. The Pax Romana. Maybe you remember that uh, from history. Pax, Latin for peace. Actually, it is the Roman god of peace. Look at a a coin here. You have uh, Augustus there on the side, on the front, and on the back side is Pax, their goddess of peace. You can see the PAX. Notice what's laying at her feet. There is a sword laying at her feet because what they're claiming is that a, a time of peace is coming and war will be coming to a close. And the scepter that she holds is an astrological symbol of commerce, what they are claiming that if you give me what I'm asking for, if you see me as the divine son, then we will give you peace and we will give you prosperity. Give me your heart and soul and your devotion and Augustus will rescue you and give you what you crave. we at the last coin here. Here's the image uh, again, Augustus, the divine Filius, the divine son, and the uh, inhabitants of the Rome, uh, Roman uh, Empire coming to give offerings, coming uh, to worship him. It's the Pax Romana. Now, as a side note, some of you history people may find this interesting. Augustus was Caesar at the time of Jesus' birth, right? The whole idea with the star, Julius Caesar, now Augustus is the, the son of God. And during the time of Christ, what appears over Bethlehem? A star right and and there, there is almost this 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 contradiction to this idea of augustus and julius caesar being divine a star appears over uh, not over rome but appears over bethlehem and what do the angelic beings say when they come to the shepherds a son is given. Augustus is the son of the divine. He's the divine Phileus, right? No, no, no. The angelic being saying, no, no. A son has been given to you. And then what do they proclaim? Peace on earth. It was this, this, it was this message, uh, uh, almost a, a, a little bit at, at, a, at a jab, a subversive jab against uh, the Roman empire. Now, with this background, we're going to continue looking uh, at Colossians, where Paul is uh, about to poke the bear. He's aware of the Pax Romana, he's aware of Caesar Augustus' claim to be the divine son, he's aware of Tiberius, who uh, also claims to be divine, and Caesar is uh, God's man over all of the known world, and in rebuttal, Paul sends a subversive message reminding the Colossians who holds ultimate power, Colossians 1.12. He says, in giving joyful thanks, we're gonna back up into a passage last that we ended on last week and go all the way through what we just read. In giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. It's not the inheritance in the kingdom of Rome, right? It's God's kingdom, for he has rescued. Now, the rescuer was Augustus. He was the one who's rescued us and brought us out of darkness into light. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Jesus has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom. get this kingdom of empire conflict here. Kingdom of the Son he loves, and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is where we picked up. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Wait, well, wait, 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 the Son. Augustus is the, is the image of God. He's a divine fool use, right? No, no, no. Paul says, it's, forget about Augustus. There's, there's someone, there's someone uh, even more. Notice Augustus is being relegated and demoted. And then Paul fires a shot over the bow. He says, next screen. He says, for in him, Jesus, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. And the Caesars had to be like, well, that sucks. Right? This was a problem. This is why if you read through some of the gospels, some of the accusations against Jesus was he was looking to overthrow Caesar, right? Which is not what Jesus was looking to do physically, but spiritually he was usurping that kingdom with his own kingdom. And so here is this this idea that rulers and authorities, thrones and powers. Paul's saying, look, are are you looking for redemption and new life? Are you looking for a better life? Are you looking for release from the old order? He says this. You can either trust in Pax Romana, the Roman peace, or you can trust in Pax Christi, the peace of Christ. Paul's text is almost treasonous. It's like Augustus, you know, I I know Augustus claimed to be the divine son, but meet the son who is over all, even Caesar. And then he stokes the fire in chapter 2. We're going to jump ahead, we'll cover this later. He says, say to it that no one takes you captive through hollow... Uh, through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition. What do you think he's talking about there? And the elementary spiritual forces of this world, rather than Christ. I wonder if he's like, our elementary spiritual forces of this world, rather than according to Christ. And then he says this. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives. This had to be a problem. Like, mm, deity lives in the Caesars. Paul says, no, no, in the... in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, right? It's not Caesar. Paul's saying it's Jesus in verse 10. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. It's almost like Caesar meet Jesus, Jesus meets Caesar. Do, do, do you, there's so much depth in what Paul is writing to the church in light of the Roman Empire, which stretched all the way from Rome into Africa, all the way down through the the Middle East and up into uh, Europe and through into uh, Asia. And here it is, Paul, setting things in order, that Jesus is the divine Son of God. Now, let's continue. Verse 17. Uh, If you don't like the history stuff, come back next week. We'll have something different. All right, (laughs) verse 17. But let me just say this. Sometimes when we do books like this, I know that the church likes inspiration, and I always try to bring something inspirational to you when uh, you're here on Sunday. But I never want us to seek inspiration uh, and exclude uh, information, right? Uh, uh, I, I know we like the catchy phrases, and we all like to get out of here and feel good, but. That's the inspiration. Sometimes we just need the information on the scripture, what it means, what it was like, what it was like when it was written, how does it apply to us, and so we're really kind of digging deep on stuff. I know this may not be some of of your thing, uh, but I'm hoping you leave here with a greater appreciation for scripture and you start to read it uh, on your own. All right, verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So who is Jesus? He is the perfect image of God. He is the ruler over everything. In other words, Paul is saying Rome isn't holding everything together. It's bigger than that. Here's the good news. Jesus not only holds the universe together, but he holds our lives together. Now, what that means is this. What I cannot sustain in my life, he can sustain. And what my hands cannot hold together, his hands can hold together. So I don't know what it is that you might find yourself going through today. But I am convinced of this, that whatever situation you find yourself in, that Jesus still holds all things together, even your life. Now, I'm not telling you that all your problems are going to disappear. That's not scriptural. But what I am telling you is that Jesus will give a supernatural power, a supernatural authority, a supernatural peace to hold things together even when circumstances are against you. I am still confident of this. After following Jesus since I was 14 years old, I'm 32 now, so do the (laughs) math. That Jesus, if if a husband and wife would submit their marriage and themselves completely to Jesus, Jesus will hold that marriage together. I'm convinced of that if we will get out of the way. I'm convinced that if we will offer our finances and put Jesus first over them, he will hold our finances together. I am convinced if one spouse says, I'm giving myself to Jesus, and one spouse says, I'm walking away from this marriage, I am convinced that Jesus will hold that spouse who has placed herself or himself under the authority of Jesus. Jesus will hold that person's life together. Regardless of what anyone else chooses, what anyone else says, what anyone else decides, Jesus holds all things together. There's your inspiration for you right there, all right? Colossians 118. It says that, and he is the head of the body, or he is the head of the church. Who is Jesus? He is the image of God. He is the ruler over all creation, and Jesus is the head of the church. Listen, I am not the head of this church. The name on the back of our jersey is not reveal, it's Jesus. It always has to be Jesus. Everything we do has to promote Jesus. Reveal saves no one, Jesus saves everyone. There's a reason why I introduce myself as one of the pastors of this church. Because I don't want to be seen as anything special or anyone of any unique and special authority. The only one who has authority is Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God. He is the head of this church. Amen? Let's never never make a person the head of anything relating to Jesus Christ. It's always Jesus. He is first and foremost, preeminent, and He is the head of the church. Meaning... The church does not run from the pew up. The church runs from the throne down. He is the one in charge, and we're changing his pocket, and he can spend us as he wishes. Our job is to just submit and say, what do you want us to do next, Father? Right? He is the head of the church. He is the head of the church. So who is Jesus? He is the image of God. He is the ruler over all of creation. Jesus is the head of his church. And then Paul says, hey, in case you forgot, Jesus is alive. Look at Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. Now here's that phrase again, the firstborn among the dead. Was Jesus the first who ever raised from the dead? It's not talking about position again. It's kind of metaphorical in its its approach. Uh, There were others who who Jesus actually raised from the dead, right? So we can't say that Jesus was the first, but here's the thing. Those other people that Jesus raised from the dead, eventually they died again. At some point, Lazarus was like, yeah, I recognize this feeling. I think I know what's about to happen, right? He's been there before. Jesus died, rose again, and never died again. And so Paul says, look, he is the firstborn, preeminence, all power, all authority. He is the only one who conquered death forever. Listen, if you want to go to Buddha's grave, you can go there. If you want to go to Muhammad's grave, you can go there. Go to Israel and ask where Jesus' grave is. People are like, I don't know. I mean, I, I know where we think he is, but we don't know what happened to him. Right? And so Paul says, he is the firstborn among the dead, rose from the grave, conquered death. Who is Jesus? He is the image of God. He is the ruler over all of creation. He is the head of his church. Jesus is alive. And then Paul finishes, he says, and Jesus is our reconciler. He says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him, To reconcile to himself all things. Why did Jesus come? Because the Father wanted you back. That's what that means. God the Father had a plan from all of eternity. And it says that when the time was right, he sent Jesus into the world because he wanted his creation back. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We talked about this idea of sin and missing the mark. Well, I'll have you out in five minutes. Missing the mark, right? It's sin, archery term. When you miss the bullseye, you've missed the mark. The bullseye is God's perfection, meaning we all sin, right? We all fall short. We all have messed up. And that sin, the Bible says, uh, affected four areas of relationship. The first area that sin affected was man or woman before God, right? That relationship was severed. The second area was man with himself, or woman with herself, that we have turned on ourselves as created beings. Nobody is as hard on, themsel- on me as I am on myself. And I'm guessing you're probably the same way. There's probably been periods in your life where you have hated the person that you are. Right? And the third relationship that was severed because of sin was man with humanity. Right? We have constantly fought to put some above others. It's the reason of racism and genocide and all of this hatred because sin has divided humanity into the haves and the have-nots. And the fourth area that was broken because of sin was with humanity, with creation. All right, Romans talks about that. The creation now groans, waiting for God to set creation back in order with earthquakes and volcanoes and all of these things going on. The creation waits to be set back into order. What Colossians is talking about is that Jesus is going to reconcile all things back to God. He's already started through his blood on the cross. That means that we can be reconciled with our relationship with God, that sin no longer separates us, that he is in the process of restoring my relationship with myself, right? This is an ongoing thing. He's in the process of ongoing your relationship with yourself and how you view yourself and how you claim your identity. He's in the process of those who would submit to restoring our relationship with the rest of humanity. Right? Convicting us and teaching us that all are equal, that no one should be placed above another. These are for followers of Christ who would submit. And one day he will restore creation as it was originally intended. This, Paul says, is the picture of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, he is the ruler over all of creation, he is the head of his church, he is alive, and he is the reconciler that we need and paul says who wants that jesus that's a pretty good jesus to claim as your own amen all right here's your homework for you if you haven't you need to start reading colossians on your own man it is packed full of spiritual truth and i want you to have an appreciation for god's word stand with me i know we went a little bit over All right, I'm sending you out to 108 degrees. You are the church. You represent Jesus when you walk out those doors. Who is the Jesus that you represent? The Jesus that we just spoke about. You represent Jesus who is the image of God. Jesus, the ruler over all creation. You represent Jesus who is the head of the church. You represent Jesus who is alive. And you represent Jesus, the reconciler. And you carry that message with you this week. Amen? You carry that message with you. I carry that message with you because the world needs this Jesus. Let's pray, Lord. Ah, there is power here, power in your word as we unpack who Jesus is. And we just want to ask that you would continue to enlighten us and reveal us on this truth, that we would have a greater appreciation and a greater understanding of the God that we serve. And I pray specifically for some who needed to hear this part that, that you hold all things together. And I pray specifically for anyone who needs you to enter into a situation and hold things together. And we pray for the power of God to be revealed, the wisdom of God to be shown. I pray that. I pray that you would speak over us, that if we would just submit that you are still able and still powerful and still preeminent and still supreme and you still hold all things together. And on that great name we rejoice, the name of Jesus Christ, the true Divi Filius, the divine Son of God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, church, I look forward to seeing you next week. God bless you. If uh, first time here, I'd love to meet you up front, or if you need prayer, we'll have somebody who can pray for you as well. God bless. Hey, invite someone back next week, would you?